Last week, The Wall Street Journal's Drew Hinshaw saw his friend Evan for the first time since March. It was only on video, and Evan was in a glass box, pacing, because the Russian government has detained him. It's the first glimpse of Evan Gershkovich for weeks. The U.S. reporter... By now, you've probably heard Evan Gershkovich's name. The journalist is accused of espionage. He faces 20 years in prison. The Moscow courthouse, where he appeared... It was packed. A few journalists call out their support. Hold strong, one shouts. Everyone sends you a big hello, the voice says. Before being hustled away. Drew has been assigned to cover his friend's story for the publication they both work for. How you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, what a weird time for you. Totally. It is weird. It's surreal. It is... Uh... This is the first time Russia has brought a spy case against an overseas reporter since the Cold War. And as Evan's colleague and friend, I assume you think, I assume you would say there, there's no truth to these allegations. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And not just me, by the way. I mean, that's, the, that's what the, the Wall Street Journal says. That's what his friends and family says. And the State Department has um, declared him a wrongfully detained American and said that these charges are, are bogus. So that's coming from uh, a lot of different corners. Do you think the truth matters here? What I can say is that in the Russian system, espionage trials are conducted in secret and they almost always end in a conviction. The uncanny thing about watching Evan in court for Drew was seeing these little flashes of the reporter he's so familiar with. His arms were folded in front of him as if he couldn't quite believe where he'd found himself. He's someone who lives and breathes this job. And I, what stood out to me is I could see the smile on his face when he saw his colleagues in that room. Those people covering him for another American detained in Russia, that probably would have been very discombobulating. Here's these journalists with their cameras pointed at you. For Evan, these are his colleagues. And, and, and beyond colleagues, they're, they're his friends. Drew says it's not that Evan didn't know his work was risky. He did. I mean, he once tweeted something that I think summed it up. He once tweeted, reporting in Russia is now also a regular practice of watching people you know get locked away for years. And Evan was doing the honorable thing, the right thing, and, and trying to report that and understand what was happening in Russia. And I think this is... Uh, this is, I mean, <laughs> this is, among other things, um, really indicative of just where the U.S.-Russia relationship is at the moment. And it's about the right for fair and accurate and balanced reporting. It sounds like you'd say there's the U.S.-Russia relationship before this detention and after it. Like it's sort of a line in the sand. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. It's definitely, you know, uh, for a lot of Western news agencies, it certainly is. A lot of, uh, uh, you know, Western news outlets that posted reporters to Moscow under Joseph Stalin have determined that under President Vladimir Putin, Russia is just too dangerous for journalism. Today on the show... How Evan Gershkovich found himself in the middle of the fight over press freedom in Russia. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. How did you first meet Evan? So he joined the, the journal about a year ago. And he'd been uh, living and working in Russia uh, for about six years. Were you there too, or were you just a European correspondent so you knew? So I cover Central and Eastern uh, Europe, um, which is so interesting because I, I was on the other side of this, you know, really very serious political divide between Russia on the East and then, you know, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, countries that just really, frankly, would love to have a, you know, two-mile high wall <laughs> between hmm. them and this country. So did you, like, reach out to him on Slack the first day, like, hey, from across the way? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, Evan and I, we met in London. Um, uh, and, I mean, we, we chatted for hours. We, uh, several times I've kind of closed out the bar with him, not because the, the bar was interesting, but because he, he is, because his reporting is interesting. And, yeah, so he's, a, my, my experience of him was he's a really energetic and enthusiastic and um, just has this sort of buoyant energy about him. When he goes to press conferences in Russia, he's kind of known for like addressing politicians in informal Russian, you know, like guys who are used to be hmm. called, you know, very formally and, you know, in this serious kind of, you know, bureaucratic language. And he rocks up in like New Balance sneakers and like an old gray sweater and addresses them in the kind of informal Russian you'd use that he uses with his family. It's sort of, it's off-putting and charming and also just kind of, um, it, it really has worked for him in terms of um, being someone that can... Uh, understand the country that he, he's in somehow. How much do you know about Evan's personal story? Like how he came to be a journalist and his parents' immigration to the U.S.? Because they came from Russia, right? That's right. Well, his parents have, a, have their own very interesting story. They, uh, they don't like to be called survivors because they um, will tell you that they found this optimism in America when they left the Soviet Union and they, they took it on. But their parents have really a, uh, a, a their, their life kind of traces this tragedy uh, of both Russia and Ukraine. They're Jewish, right? They're Jewish, yeah. And his grandmother survived the Holocaust. She was a um, nurse in a Polish military hospital at the end of the war. She treated some of these patients coming in from Auschwitz. Um, 
And wow. these were patients who, you know, who couldn't eat very much. They, if you, if they had to fight the kind of human urge to eat because uh, if, if they ate too much, their, 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 their bodies couldn't handle it. Um, and when she would recall that story, she, she would just, she would weep. His mother has told the story about how her family would put blankets over the windows when they lit candles for the Sabbath. That's right. She was afraid as a teenager. She's afraid to go into a synagogue because they were afraid that if you did, you would be photographed and, you know, the Secret Service would take note of you. It's interesting that they raised Evan with this desire to go back to Russia. They tell this story that they took him back to Russia on a visit, I, I think in the 90s, you know, and they went to um, the very synagogue that I, I just mentioned, and they went to um, a museum about Jewish life. And it was the, they said to him afterwards, like, now I think you can understand us, because it was this moment when, you know, it, it's hard to imagine as a, as a perhaps as a, a boy growing up in, in New Jersey, this kind of experience. They they left in the seventies um, when there were rumors going about that um, Soviet Jews were about to be deported to Siberia. You know, <laughs> for Evan's mother, who her mother had survived this. I mean, that you can imagine just how important it was for them to to get out and then to to make their way to the U.S. So, why was returning to Russia a goal for Evan? So I was I've been kind of talking to his his colleagues and friends and you know there's an interesting like a uh, person in this who uh, is a, like a role model for i think a lot of people of like me and evans like our generation of foreign correspondents and and that's like anthony bourdain he he loved huh. anthony bourdain he he would he when he worked in uh kitchens in new york city he was a line cook yeah he did that while he was working for the new york times right that's right that's right and he would leave work and go to a club or a bar or something with friends and how he would have seven knives, <laughs> so, you know, seven kitchen knives to be clear, like on his person because he, he loved cooking. And everybody who you talked about, Evan, says he's an amazing chef. He absolutely loves food, he, you know, and um, like he has that Anthony Bourdain spirit of like, you know, I want to go and understand the, the other parts of the world. And, okay, so he was working at the New York Times, which for a lot of people, you know, at, at that point would be a, a dream job, right? I mean, he was a news assistant, but, you know, you work your way up. Um, but someone said to him, like, you know, look, you've got, um, Russian language skills. You understand the country on some level because of your parents. Um, you should go back and, and freelance, which for a lot of people would be a little bit intimidating, you know, mm. where do you start? How do you begin? And he did it. He made the leap. And, uh, I think he was actually very successful, very relatively quickly. Evan joined the journal just weeks before. Russia invaded Ukraine. Can you describe that time? Yeah, absolutely. So when Evan joined uh, in January and February, the prediction coming out of the Pentagon was that this would be a very kind of swift victory for Russia. Um, there was a, not just in the Pentagon, there was a fatalism across Europe. Yeah, the thought was just like tanks rolling into Kiev. That's right. That's right. And one of his first stories was from the border of Belarus, where um, he just watched these, you know, a string of Russian military ambulances with their, their windows blocked with gray shades, pulling up to the a main hospital, just, you know, just across the border, uh, basically bringing in casualties from the front. 
And I remember reading it and thinking one of the first signs that, oh, this is actually uh, not, <laughs> for, for Russia, this is actually not looking very good for them, is it? Um, the, this kind of swift march into Kiev wasn't at all panning out. Evan left Russia soon after the invasion, along with many members of the Western press. But he still wanted to understand how regular Russian citizens were making sense of their sanctioned existence. So he decided to go back. He wrote stories only someone on the ground could, like this detailed report on the return of clubbing and jazz festivals among Moscow's young people. They were dancing and drinking as the war raged on. But even as Muscovites seemed to ignore the largest ground invasion in Europe since World War II, the city was becoming more hostile to Westerners like Evan. He kind of liked to go to the sauna and, 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 and chat there. And he, he, he goes to the sauna near the end of 2022 and another bather uh, kind of heard him speaking in English and basically, you know, told him with some pretty uh, heavy and awful expletives to stop speaking English. And, you know, he thought for a minute and then just sort of shot back, uh, Russia is a multilingual country. And the guy paused for a second, then he said back, you know, but English isn't one of them. Drew told me why despite this aggression, this anxiety, Evan still wanted to report on Russia, from Russia. It's because of Evan and a, you know, like you said, fairly small number of reporters that we know what's going on in, in this part of the world. What kind of precautions did he have to take? He reported some, uh, you know, some strange incidents. You know, one incident, he was followed by several Russian security officers, some of whom recorded his movements with a camera. He assumed his phone was monitored. And um, there was another trip uh, to the western region of Pskov where he was sort of followed and filmed by unidentified men. So I think you can, you know, derive from that, you know. Yeah, that was there in the atmosphere. After the break, Evan's damning reporting on Putin and the harrowing Russian prison he's now being held in. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. 
His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. I know you worked with Evan on this extensive piece about Vladimir Putin back in December. I wonder if we can talk about that experience and the experience of working closely with him and also reporting on something that certainly is not going to make his life easier as a correspondent inside Russia. So towards the end of, the, towards the end of last year, it's pretty clear that the journal owed its readers, you know, uh, some sort of uh, profile of who Putin has become and where his head is at. And, and not only us, the New York Times on the same time did a profile of Putin. And I mean, they had quite literally 25 reporters working on it. And I know that number because Evan counted (laughs) the, you know, so-and-so contributed to this, so-and-so contributed to this, Mm so-and-so contributed to this. We had Evan. And I have to say, Evan held his own. He he, he, he evened the score, I think, for for being one reporter up against, you know, a whole uh, army of, you know, competing journalists. Evan was able to, you know, sort of um, build a profile that showed the president was sort of isolated and surrounded by kind of a handful of hardline advisors who were telling him things were going better than they really were. Yeah. How did you find out that Evan had been arrested? Um, I was eating dinner with a fellow reporter who um, uh, works closely with Evan, as do I, but you know, he had been kind of in that contact with him early that day. And when he had uh, texted him back, you know, he had texted him that morning and said, hey, you know, good, good luck today because he knew he was out, you know, reporting. And uh, Evan had texted back, you know, thanks, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. And um, when he didn't respond to like a later text, uh, uh, he, my, my colleague I was meeting for dinner got a bit nervous and worried, as, as understandably so. Um, so the newsroom kind of scrambled to, uh, you know, reach people in Yekaterinburg, where he had been. And um, what kind of, you know, we, we didn't know. We're sort of sitting there trying to figure this out. And then there was a vague post on the uh, messaging service Telegram um, reporting that security agents had taken someone from a steakhouse in Yekaterinburg with his hood up. And it didn't say that person was Evan, but somehow there was a feeling in your stomach that this, this could be him. I'm imagining you guys at some restaurant, both with your cell phones out, 
tapping and tapping and tapping as you realized what was going on. Is that what it was like? Yeah, and and just a bit. Um, I mean, on a personal level, I would describe it. I describe it as a like I I felt like I was in a, a fever that night. It's hard to sleep. You know, you kind of like my 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 limbs quite literally felt like hot. Like I felt like I had almost like a a fever, just kind of being unable to to sleep, thinking about um, at that moment. You know, where is he? I know you've reported on the prison where Evans being detained. Can you tell me more about that place? Yeah. He's in Lefortovo prison. Um, it's a czarist era prison, but it's really famous from the Stalin era when um, the uh, executions of purged uh, officials would take place in the basement. So it has a history. Absolutely. These days, it, uh, it's kind of most famous for its isolation. It's a prison where you can you know, you spend a very long time without ever seeing another prisoner or even hearing another prisoner. Everyone's in solitary? Everyone is in solitary. At some point, you might be given a cellmate. But if you're given a cellmate, that's the only other person except for a prison warden that you would see. Hmm. Trevor Reed, uh, who was a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, uh, uh, spent, was in six prisons in Russia, described it as the most sinister. You just couldn't hear or see anyone when they move you in the prison, what they do is they clink metal together, either their keys or they have these, like, um, you know, they snap their fingers sometimes. Um, and that, basically what that does is warn all the other prisoner guards, if there are any prisoners in the hallway, put them away now. Because the idea is when you're being escorted from your cell to be interrogated, you should not see any other prisoner. Uh, you should not get, you should be isolated. Totally, totally isolated. Not even a not even a quick glance, like eye contact, that might be kind of fortifying for someone who's in that position. Wow, I mean, that is that's a way to break someone down. Yeah, yeah. How many journalists like Evan are left in Russia, like Americans reporting from inside the country? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, I, I don't, you know, know the like the exact latest toll. But I mean, the we you know the Wall Street Journal has has pulled its its Russia bureau chief out of the country. Um, we're not the only ones. Um, yeah, that sort of uh, thin window into what was happening in, in in Russia is is really really closing. There's been this speculation, and I know you don't want to talk about it in great depth, that Russia might be angling for some kind of prisoner swap here. And many listeners will, of course, remember basketball star Brittany Griner, who was recently freed in exchange for arms dealer Victor Boot. But reading the reporting a little bit, what struck me is that it seems like it's Russia's policy not to trade anyone until they're convicted, which would mean this story could be going on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um he had a bail hearing where he was basically, you know, denied denied bail, um, and his, you know, they upheld his detention, and you know, the journal had offered up a bail, of, you know, a pretty considerable bail, and and it uh, it was rejected. The court rejected that. How long do you think you're going to be able to continue reporting on your friend? I mean, um, as a person, I, I, you know, uh, I I can't imagine why what would make me stop, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You you want to close the bar down with him again soon, I can tell. 
<laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Actually, it's funny. He, um, he's, uh, he's reading Life and Fate according to uh, this Russian prison monitor. So if that guy's lying, he owes me a lot of time because I'm now reading <laughs> Life and Fate because I thought, well, I should have something to relate with Evan about. You're reading the same book he's reading. What, what's Life and Fate? Okay, but this is the thing. It's like 800 pages long. I didn't know that. You know, I heard, oh, it's a novel about World War II. I thought, all right, 300 pages. I've got time for that. You know, um, it's 800 pages, Mary. So <laughs> it's fantastic. It's an amazing book. I can't wait to talk to him about it. You know, I, 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 I'm sure it must be. I'm like, part of me is like surprised they, that they let you read that in a Russian prison because it's incredibly critical of authoritarianism. <laughs> so, but... um yeah, I'm about a hundred pages into it. I, 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 I'm gonna guess he's had, he's gotten more, he's deeper into the book than I am. But uh, yeah, so things like that, you know. I, I, uh, it's nice to kind of feel some connection to, you know, your colleague, even though he's on the other side of this wall. You still sound kind of shocked. This is all happening. Yeah, yeah. What makes you say that? It's just something about your voice. Like, yeah. I can hear you processing it in real time. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. You know, I've, I've talked to, I can't count how many people who've been in the Forteville prison. And um, so, you know, at this point, I have a sense of how the prison works. We got some to go on Google Maps and, you know, basically identify this is where this happens, this is where the interrogations happen. But that's all abstract and it's journalistic. And um, when you stop to think, you know, this is. Uh, somebody that in a normal time I'd be reporting the story with who's in there. Yeah, it's, um, it is a bit surreal. Drew, I'm really grateful for your time and for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Drew Hinshaw is a senior world reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us, show us a little love, is to join our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out all about it. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, Madeline Ducharme, and now Rob Gunther. We're getting a little help from Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is our Senior Director of Podcast Operations at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter, say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. All right, I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.